You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. My guests today are Barbara Burfine. She is Chief Plans and Integration for Defense Visual <laughs> Information, Defense Media Activity, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, and Lieutenant Commander Heidi Lanzini with the United States Navy, U.S. Southern Command Public Affairs. Ladies, thank you for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you again, Eric. Likewise, Barbara. So I know you're here presenting a case study on Haiti. Um, What exactly was your involvement in the relief effort there? My uh, organization, Defense Visual Information, actually oversees the Defense Imagery Management Operations Center, and they run the website defenseimagery.mil, which is primarily for our internal DOD users, but DIMOC, which is the acronym for that organization, was the central acquisition point or the central point receiving point for all of the imagery from the military photographers that went to cover the Haiti operations after the earthquake. Um, Working there and doing uh, some of our own case studies and our own briefings on after the fact in terms of imagery, how we managed it, how we gathered requirements, how we transmitted imagery. a lot of things that we have run into over and over again, just it seems like we keep reinventing the wheel. And so within just visual information within VI, we had put together some lessons learned and I had put together a case study. So when this opportunity came up, I started asking uh, folks if they would be willing to go on a panel, panel to talk about public affairs and VI planning because... We do humanitarian assistance and disaster relief all the time. This is not, I mean, since Haiti, we've, we've had another earthquake in Chile. We've had the Pakistan floods. And years ago, Pakistan had earthquakes as well. So this is not something new in terms of operations that we've been doing. However, some of the lessons that we keep learning, we keep learning over and over again. And I wanted to capture some of those and try and share those with people so that we really could prepare ourselves better, but we need to get a handle on measuring that kind of result so that we can get ahead the next time. Lieutenant Commander Lanzini, tell me about your experience there. Well, Eric, as I, as I mentioned earlier to you, I actually had the, uh, the duty phone the day that this happened. And uh, w- literally within minutes, the phone was flooded with calls from reporters. And the, the main thing I kept saying over and over again was, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how many people we're sending. I don't know what kind of support we're providing. I don't know um, how we're going to get you there. But we're going to find out. And so um, uh, stepped into an office the next day that was just uh, pretty pretty amazing. And I have to say for us uh, at U.S. Southern Command, it being essentially Grand Central until we were able within about a week to uh, to help set up and support a Joint Information Bureau and, of course, continue to provide support throughout the operation. That, so um, I just want to make I'm, uh, clear I'm sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying your job was to help the reporters get down there? Uh 
Partly. Some of them, of course, were up to, were able to find their own way down there. Um, and How? Uh, How would you get down there in that type of situation? Well, it, that's where creative solutions really come into uh, because basically, when you, when you start from a uh, a uh, an airport, what is normally used to dealing with about twenty five flights per day, uh, don't do night flights, anything else like that, and then within about twenty you know twenty four to forty eight hours, our Air Force folks were able to with their lawn chairs and radios, I might add, uh, kick that number up to oh about one hundred and fifty um, with a very rigorous uh, slot system that they use, and really anybody who asked for a slot was going to get one. Of course, with a certainly a hierarchy in terms of you know critical needs, and unfortunately for us, media fell into priority four, with one being the highest, and so that what was frustrating for us is that we would get. Uh, they would tell us, okay, great, you've got a slot from Miami to get folks down there. And then they would say, yes, you do, no, you don't, yes, you do, no, you don't. And so what we ended up having to do was to route the media through Guantanamo Bay, get them to the ships that were already, that managed to get down there rather quickly. And in addition, of course, to covering what was happening with the ships, like the uh, USS Carl Vence and the aircraft carrier with the USNS Comfort, the hospital ship, um, then they were able to then leapfrog into the country that way. Or some people, through their own means, were able to get to the Dominican Republic public and go through a rather laborious route to get across that way. So there were many ways to creatively get there. The key was just sort of trying to think outside the box and thinking of uh, how exactly we were going to make that work. And then also, too, it's like maybe we can't physically get you there, but we can get you interviews with people. We can try to connect you in other ways. And for us at Southcom, we had this amazing webmaster who was able to just really quickly respond to a lot of information, get it up on the page as fast as we could, and just start having people be aware of the Southcom website such that they could continue to refer to it for information and, and then try to cut down on the number of calls we were getting because people with outside our organization were complaining that they couldn't reach us. I said, well, everybody's on the phone. <laughs> so we can't, there's really no, you know, so email was huge. Uh, phone connection was huge and the web was was huge and we also have Twitter we also have uh, a, a, you know our, a Facebook page and things like that so they were very heavily in use and then for us too to have the support from our colleagues that they coming they came in droves I mean our office literally doubled for 24-hour operations so it was uh, a pretty incredible experience do, do you know off the top of your head the the how far Guantanamo Bay is from Haiti um it's I very close. It's not. It's really not that far. It's in. It's within Osprey Range. You you can see um, from Guantanamo. You can actually see the island of Haiti. The main so, thing is it's helicopter range. So, so, it's so helicopters somewhere. were transporting personnel as well. Uh, right, and then there were also they were using barges for uh, equipment and things like that. So Gitmo became very quickly uh, a hot spot in terms of a hub of of movement. And, um, and so our, our friends at Joint Task Force uh, Guantanamo were able to, because they already had some facilities for media, were able to help us uh, move them through Guantanamo to the ships and then some returning, coming through that other, you know, reverse in the direction. And so that was part of the deal is that the media you know, signed an agreement ahead of time and said, look, if you go from the ship to Haiti, you're now on your own. We're not responsible for what happens to you after that. But that was a really... You know, it was really kind of dicey for a while, just trying to even lock into a spot and and getting that. It it, it really took uh, our chief of staff, who's a Marine One Star, getting involved to say, "No, you are not going to bump them from this flight." <laughs> 
we, we really had to, to kick it up to that level it, and get that support. And that's, to me, a, a lesson learned big time is that to really get that early senior leadership buy-in and say, you just give me one or two seats, just one or two. I'm not asking for a lot here, but one that, and please protect it so we can a, a guarantee that even if I can just kind of trickle it through and get something there, it's better than nothing at all or getting their hopes up and then constantly having to say, sorry, you know, I know you've been sitting here for four days waiting and the hotels are very expensive, but we're really working. That was a challenge for everybody across the board, not just for the media. Um, Mm -hmm. Even the combat camera photographers that were trying to get down there got bumped off or were told to wait as a lower priority of flights. The problem with that is... um, so the first flights went out, and the first thing that, that leadership in, in D.C. and elsewhere were asking for is, where's the imagery? Mm-hmm. And they, they had not taken the photographer along. And mm-hmm. so we're telling people, you have to plan for the visuals. As important as all the humanitarian aid and everything was, if you're not going to cover and show that, then you're not going to be able to go ahead and, and show people what's happening and what kind of needs there are. The other thing is... The military, we were there in a support capacity. So State Department had the lead, and all of those interagencies that were down there all had to work together. Um, Heidi's boss told me something after the fact that struck me in in terms of, because I said, well, how did you keep people from just showing up? And he said, Mm -hmm. there were plenty of people turned away because one of the standard was when it first happened, if you showed up, even the military, if you weren't self-sustaining, for 10 days, they'd turn you away because there was no infrastructure, there was no water, there was no mean? food. What does self-sustaining mean? Bring your own food, bring your own sleeping bag, pad to sleep on, bring water, bring whatever you need to maintain yourself for 10 days. You might not need it that many days, but they could not afford it. Kind of like the Marines, you know, in terms of being deployable and just having everything on their back. That's pretty much what they were looking for. They couldn't afford for people to to come on the ground and take anything away from the people that already didn't have anything. So once you get a photographer out there, a military photographer, combat correspondent, they're called? Combat camera photographer. Combat camera photographer. Combat camera. How do you know where to send them? Like, how do you, how do they divide and conquer? One of our big lessons learned, it it was a... it's basically what we call imagery requirements. And one of the photographers that was down there, um, Master Chief Spike Call, I asked him that very question. I said, so how did you know, except for the ESP mode, which uh, doesn't work very well? Well, he's a very experienced photographer. He said, I called. And I said, well, who'd you call? And he goes, I called DIMAC. I called you guys. I called the Pentagon. I called uh, Southcom. I called my friends in Millington, Tennessee. And I said, why? And he said, there were medical people there that were asking for imagery. He said, they all told me what we need, they needed, and then I assigned people according to those needs and made sure to transmit the imagery back to them. Not easy, but he was doing that. One of the lessons learned was, in the plan, you need to identify humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. The imagery is not that much different. What are the kinds of things you're looking for when you cover these kinds of operations? And that's what we're trying to capture. Um, I remember after the event, um, there were stories that it had a galvanizing effect on Ustream and that a lot of people were using this uh, website where you can essentially stream live video from a cell phone as long as you have an Internet connection to Ustream and that a lot of the early reports 
of what were going on there were surfacing on Ustream. And I guess, I mean, I wonder if any of the combat correspondents or you guys were using that information to figure out how to dispatch people. Um, I think they didn't have a whole lot of resources initially, not even Internet. So um, I think it was more word of mouth than anything, although they were very creative with Internet and email in terms of trying to transmit imagery back because there there really wasn't any infrastructure where did they, they could have do internet that. like did they have like the ships, laptops the with air did. cards or something the ships did. so they had to so tra- they had to get to, to the, the ship. ship so if they couldn't not transmit the photos directly from not the field originally not initially when they first got there no is that because they didn't have the gear or because it's just not possible i mean it was, can you I get mean, a cell phone was, signal there I mean, that, that one area, there was nothing Nothing left. there. No cell towers, nothing. Well, Eric, let me tell you, because it was just a complete coincidence that our deputy commander, our three-star uh, General Keene, just happened to be in Haiti for another conference and when this happened. And our main mode of communication was his BlackBerry um, to get any information about what was happening. So that was really the challenge is, um, yes, we did have some communication, but uh, and really the main mode, even throughout, was mostly email rather than trying to rely on phones and whatnot. It's just a lot of email back and forth with the folks that were down there. And it was relatively responsive. I mean, we stuff was going back and forth quickly, but um, that was really one of the main challenges. And, and, and at least we did have the ships that were there, and it wasn't overly difficult to get folks back and forth if you needed to. And, and plus, too, they had a benefit of having a shower, having a hot meal, having all those sort of other basic amenities that were not so basic, at least at that time. So... Um, and it's something they just needed to factor into their planning to make sure that they were able to get those folks back to the ship in, in, in a timely manner so they could do that sort of thing. Sometimes on broadcast news, I'll mm-hmm. see a report from a correspondent in a faraway place. Mm-hmm. And it looks almost, I don't know, but it looks like they're using a satellite phone or something. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of not that many frames per second. It's a little and choppy, but at least pixelated. you can get an image. Mm-hmm. What is that technology and why weren't you guys using that type of technology? Uh, you know, that, that's an interesting question. As you know, things are evolving and, and as we find ways to support that, I mean, we, we try to be as, as up and coming with what we can within, you know, the means of uh, expenses and whatnot. So, um, and that's certainly something that, you know, in the past I've had to haul some pretty hefty gear in order to, to do that, that to have that kind of capability. Um, and so that's where, like I said, when you have something like a ship that you you can get back to that has the, the more predictable structure and um, sometimes what happens too with imagery because you'd think oh the ship would have tons of bandwidth it, it sometimes does have limited bandwidth such that public affairs now has to do transmitting in the evening and they're really kind of restricting a lot of other people in order to sort of make room for us to you know transmit the video back transmit images back uh, to headquarters so that can start you know get that process moving so um, you, you know, I can't comment specifically on why we don't have it. I just say we try to work. It's, I would say it's cost. I mean, yeah. the civilian news organizations that are using some of that technology, it's still satellite time, and the equipment to transmit to those satellites is hugely expensive, mm-hmm. and we don't inherently have that. Now, they did send, um, from what I understand, some DIVIDS equipment, which is the uh, digital video imagery uh, distribution system that uh, they were able to do live interviews and transmit that back up and not necessarily for just media but for like uh, video teleconferencing VTCs so that they could have some um, one-on-one communication with leadership here in DC in terms of talking about the way ahead and what they were going to do Mm -hmm. but 
you know, and they also had to manage the expectation in terms of the military was there for the original uh, response, but they weren't going to stay there forever. And so you didn't want everybody saying, well, why are you leaving now when things started to ramp down? Because the crisis down there still continues. They're still struggling to rebuild. They're still struggling to try and get back on their feet. And that's going to be a long time before they actually recover from this kind of a disaster. We're talking to Barbara Burfine from Defense Visual Information and Lieutenant Commander Heidi Lanzini from the United States Navy uh, Southcom. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about lessons learned uh, from the Haiti disaster relief effort. Stay with us. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. So you mentioned satellites. Um, I go onto Google Maps, and it's amazing what I can see. I mean, I can plan my trip. I can make sure I get a hotel that's on the bus route, everything. And I've got to think that's satellite imagery and I got to think when it comes to satellite imagery, you guys maybe have some connections, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how far away are we from the age where you're just going to get on a satellite and start taking these pictures and offering them through uh, defense, um, visual information, defense media activity? We usually, well, we're collecting this stuff from the photographers. So when you come into satellites, a lot of that imagery is on the operational side. So when you're talking about disasters, that kind of thing, you still have to let State Department, you know, coordinate and let them decide what they want to do. So I don't know. There's some sensitivities there for a disaster Can relief you organization. that to me? Because as a civilian, I don't really understand that. I mean, what are the sensitivities? Because it seems to me, you know, as a citizen and a taxpayer... If, you know, there's, if we have assets in the air that can see things mm-hmm. and you guys have access to those assets, why would politics block people from seeing those images? Well, it's not unlike what Heidi was talking about in terms of the bandwidth problem. It, it's the same issue. That bandwidth on a ship isn't there just for our use. Yes, we might be able to get a little bit of time to use it, but the original mission, they're still there to do their original tasking. So they might be able to schedule schedule you, you, in, you in, but you aren't the one and only person using it. So you're fighting for airtime because there's only so much that they can go ahead and even on the ship that they can allow. So even if you have a lot, it was originally bought and set up and intended for a totally different purpose and now you've got not just public affairs but all these other people coming in and wanting to use the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a huge disaster, a global disaster where people's lives are at stake but even in that type of situation, commerce never takes a back seat. That's what you're saying. Well, exactly because it's still, you know, basically decided and set up by what you can afford and what the mission is and that it's 
that's so a support never mission a point for us. where like you know the telecom or i don't know somebody i don't know who's involved so if i said telecom and I, I shouldn't have. I apologize to the telecoms mm-hmm. who might be listening. But somebody in there is making a buck. Isn't there a point where the person, where the, the capitalist comes in and says, you know what? They're this not- is terrible. We're going to devote all our resources to you now. I don't and know that we're not it was charge you. There were plenty of civilian industry or people that were offering and helping, though. I mean, you had people flying planes, personal planes down there. But you also have to be able to fit that in with all the other efforts going on and coordinate it with the interagency so um, they don't necessarily all work together either you you know you can have something that definitely doesn't work with everything else that they have there so it's got to be coordinated Mm -hmm. so they the NGOs State Department the interagencies there were a lot of people involved with Haiti Um, I think after the fact in terms of lessons learned uh, I don't know who said it but they said you know we did a really good job in terms of, um, you know, throwing things down there. We were effective in terms of responding and getting things in there as fast as we possibly could. Um, but were we efficient? Probably not, because we put so many resources in there, and you know everybody was just trying to respond and do the right thing. But we probably didn't do it in the most efficient manner. So that's where the lessons learned come in, because. How can we better coordinate with interagencies? How can we better um, coordinate our efforts in terms of responses to other disasters in the future? Because we know that it's not if, it's always going to be when. Lieutenant Commander Lanzini, if you were to advise private sector communications Mm -hmm. professionals um, about lessons learned, is there any lessons or takeaways that would be applicable, applicable to any private sector communicator? Well, I would say, and and I'm just watching switching topics slightly, very admiring in how, how the Chileans handled the, the recent mining incident and something that the, the president of Chile had mentioned that I, I really kind of kind of stuck with me and something similar that I had mentioned myself at a previous conference that I attended was the fact that you can't be afraid to look at any resource that possibly offers help and turn it away. You can't let pride get in the way of thinking, oh, I can handle it myself when clearly you can't. And and it's now is not the time to, to be proud. And now is the time to say, you know what, if this, even if you don't think it might be everything that you want, if it helps in, in some way, then then do it. If it's not, if it's with outside your organization and they can help you, bring it in. Even if it's a competitor or a rival, you know, bring it in because at this point, you just got to get it done. You just got to make it happen. And and we would literally, I'm not kidding you, doubled our office and we've really felt sometimes that we could barely breathe um, just because there was just so much happening and so much to process and uh, even the most basic of functions that you just need to assign somebody to handle even for us like public affairs guidance that's normally what I do but because I was the only Navy person in the entire office and there was a lot of Navy assets that were down there and I was getting asked tons of questions I really couldn't do the most basic of tasks I was just so busy dealing with just the comments and the questions and things that I was getting that, I mean, OSD literally, the Office of the Secretary of Defense literally sent down two public affairs officers and one of them, that was her function in life. That's all she focused on. And it was helpful because she wasn't from our office. She didn't get dragged into other stuff. She could really focus on this one piece that we really needed to have done and really just knock it out and get it and knock it out of the park and make it happen. So that's the thing is just really um, taking a hard look at what you have, being able to ask for what you want. And, and really getting folks to uh, and, and being also to support 
the organizations you have that are on the ground as well and saying, okay, what do you need? What can we get you? And, and really helping them out too. And, and, um, and that's really the main thing is, and just having resources that will support those folks on the ground. The website, of course, is a huge thing because then instead of your office being flooded with 50 million phone calls as, as you start, or even putting that on your voicemail, that's in to say, you know, please, you know, check our website first. If you have further questions after checking the website, then please give us a call. And hopefully most of the answers will come right there and, and know that it's constantly updated such that it's taking some of the heat off the office and you can really focus on your basic tasks. Lieutenant Commander Heidi Lenzini, United States Navy, uh, U.S. Southern Command, and Barbara Burfine, uh, Chief of Visual Information uh, for Plans and Integration at the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On The Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record Online and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record Online, this episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.